in the early 90s, the men's promise keeper movement was running full tilt. They hosted one of their gatherings in Indianapolis. Indy and I were living in Lansing, Michigan at the time, and we decided we wanted to charter a bus and take a group of men down. And we bought all the tickets, chartered the bus, booked the rooms. And there's a lot of guys that come to that. I, I don't know. I remember it as the Hoosier Dumb. That may be the wrong name, but um, uh, we were going down there, you know, what, 70,000 men who take up a few hotel rooms in a weekend with a Promise Keeper weekend like that. <laughs> we got right up against it and realized that we formally assumed that our reservations had been booked with our tickets for the event and found out right up against the event that we had no rooms. We had a bus, we had that registration to get in, but that our registration for the rooms didn't work out, and then we were scrambling trying to figure out what to do. So we start in a concentric circle around Indianapolis, and okay, you can't get one there, okay, how about here, how about here, how about here? (laughs) And of all things, we found that a Homewood Suites in West Lafayette, Indiana would take us. So uh, after the Friday night event, we had to get to the bus, and one poor chap had an he got lost and couldn't find the bus for another hour, you know. So we arrive at Homewood Suites at 2.30 in the morning. And uh, some of the guys were trying to help the other guys through it. You know, one guy, he's pointing out all of the uh, skyline in Chicago that he could see in the lights as we're rolling up, what is it, 65, headed toward uh, Chicago. So we roll in at 2.30 and had a little huddle and said, all right, 5.30, we have to be you know, out here for the bus. And... Um, one guy gave us the final charge. He said, well, I think if we all sleep fast, we'll all be okay. So let's just sleep fast and we'll be okay. Oh, it was a sorry story of no room for us in the end. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, one famous and exploited fact in the history of the narrative of Jesus' birth is the fact that there was no place to stay. As it were, no room for them in the end. Now, playwrights through the years, this has been their playground for embellishing this little fact in the story. In fact, uh, those uh, amateur uh, directors of all things church Christmas program have really got a lot of mileage out of the fact that there was no room for them in the end. And of course, any Christmas drama church is always... uh, played out that fact and what happened. 
The census created a need for those who had historic origin in the house of David to go back and to go to Bethlehem to register for the census. And it was the authority of the Roman Empire that was driving this. But that particular fact in the story becomes a perfect metaphor for how to understand how Christ is received by our world. Why in the first century there was no room for him to stay. Uh, Well, one could argue metaphorically that really that's how we are to perceive how Christ is received even in our own day. Well, I can't imagine a day where Christ has been any less popular Uh, than he is today, pushed to the margins today, not unlike the margins of that small hamlet in Bethlehem, a two-bit little community. We would have missed it if we were living in the first century. Not very many people lived there, uh, but many had origins there and who came back, so it would have filled up quickly. But we live in a world that has substantially lit the neon sign of its attention to Jesus Christ with the words, of course, no vacancy. But the question before us this morning is how much of this limited space syndrome for Jesus Christ is present in our own hearts? Now this message is designed to discern whether we've unwittingly adopted a measure of the spirit of our age, which is not unlike the spirit of the first century. The whole message is built around one word in the text. It's the word place. It's in Luke 2, 7, because there was no place for them in the end. I began, and it's a common word. It's really not a word that etymologically in its stem is rich. It's kind of a generic term, place. It's translated with several different English words, but it has an interesting history in the New Testament. And I'd like to look at this word place and consider it with you this morning and think out loud. The central idea that emerges in the story of Christmas The history of Christmas is where I want to start. That will be point one. But secondly, then, I want to look at this word. There was no place for them in the end. And I want to look at that word in John 14 and contrast how the world received Jesus with how Jesus Christ has prepared a place, same word, uh, for everyone who will come to him. And then finally, I want to ask in the third part of the message, well then, uh, how about us and this term place? What kind of a place are we giving Christ in our own lives? So that's, that's our plan of attack. So first, the world has no place for Jesus. Now, this is kind of the uh, obvious point. We understand this. It emerges in the story. And what's amazing is that They have no place for the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the one they had no place for. 
David Wells wrote a thoughtful book a few years back called No Place for Truth, and Jesus is the truth. We have a world that has no place for Jesus. Now let's note two conclusions from this first point, the world has no place for Jesus. And the one is, first, there was no lodging in Bethlehem for Jesus. Small community, census brings everybody there. Now the assumption is, of course, if the manger was for his bed, that he lodged, and it's not, and and we have these beautiful uh, crochets that have the, the, you know, the perfect stable where Jesus is supposedly born. We don't know where he was born, but clearly it was in some association with where animals gathered because a manger was there and baby Jesus was put in the manger. So the assumption is it is a conclave for animals, but you, you look at this picture, the irony is extraordinary. The king found abode in a manger. Now, in the midst of what is being called a triple-demic, uh, the RSV, the virus, the respiratory virus, uh, COVID, and the flu have put a lot of people in the hospital. In fact, there's been a lot of illness. Uh, stay well. Uh, that old stuff we learned in kindergarten, you know, wash your hands and uh, 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 be careful. Is, is good advice now, but I, I, whenever I receive word, all oh, they went to the emergency room, I just cringe. You know, I want to pray because the hospitals are so full with the census. If you go to the emergency room, you, you can be consigned to several days waiting for a bed, and they make wards out of hallways, and you're waiting in a bay in the emergency area. Oh, it's tough, tough going in, in this moment. Uh, there's just no room. It was like that in Bethlehem. But it was not just no room for anybody. This is the living Lord of glory who comes and there's no place to go. So he's pushed to the margins and finds his abode in the manger. There's no room. Now the second conclusion from this first point that we need to lay hold of, the world has no place for Jesus, is what was happening in the first century was actually not a new development, a phenomenon never seen before nor is it something that to our age is strange or odd. This is not a new development. It's wrong to conclude, boy, wasn't the first century particularly harsh toward Jesus. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, begins this glorious chapter looking forward to Jesus, Isaiah 53, like this. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The world is full of unbelief. The world is full of darkness. They're in the dark about Jesus. Uh, They're not receiving him. He has not been revealed to them. Uh, This is 700 years before Jesus But Isaiah was noting a dismissive world full of unbelief. Think of this, John 1.10. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. Wow. There would be endless reruns of this disposition toward Jesus through history. 
Bethlehem was not the first, nor the last season of this kind of posture toward Jesus Christ. The first century does not have the market on this phenomenon of pushing Jesus to the margins. This spirit lives into our day. It seems to me that there's never been a day where Jesus was less popular than today. And devoted followers of Jesus are now associated with hatefulness and uh, being on the wrong side of history and being rejected by our culture as never before in my lifetime. But they crucified Jesus. What should we expect? Substantially, we have the same cultural makeup in the 21st century as we had in the first, not recognizing Jesus for who he is and pushing Jesus to the margins. We've just been on reruns of that for 21 centuries. Now, there's a social phenomenon in the social media world right now, and uh, they publish two pictures. And the first picture will have the caption underneath of it, how it started. And then the second picture will be how it's going. And they're often either a great contrast or uh, they'll be making fun of themselves and not very much progress has been made since it started. And, And so they'll publish both pictures. They look substantially the same. But isn't it true that if we took a picture in the first century of, you know, how it started, here's Jesus out in the barn the archetypical picture of being marginalized. How it's going? Well, looks like to me he's still out in the barn. Uh, He's still being pressed to the margin. This is not a new development. Now, let's not be discouraged. John 16, 33, Jesus said this, Take heart, I have overcome the world. One of the things I notice about Jesus in the Gospels is he was never threatened by the world's disposition toward him. His mission went forward with all of its might and congruent with what God had intended all along. So the world has no place for Jesus. We all know that. And you see it in Luke 2, 7, because there was no, here's the word, place for them in the end. Now, the second thing I want to say is I want to tell you something very bright. That's dark, Eric. That's not encouraging. Well, let me tell you something very wonderful about Jesus. Jesus Christ is making a place for us. And the us would be everyone who has believed on Jesus Christ for their salvation. Everyone who is trusting in him. That's one of our four great words is this whole idea of relying upon him trusting upon Christ. That's how we begin a relationship with God. We stop relying upon ourselves to be accepted by God, and we trust in Christ. This morning, we come to these very elements, his broken body, his shed blood, these very elements which speak to the whole reason why God made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. Jesus Christ is making a place for us. Think of John 14, 3. I go to prepare, here's the term, a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. The world had no place for Jesus. 
And Jesus is preparing a place for everyone who believes on him. Now think of it with me in two different directions. First, the great irony of Christmas is the great contrast between Jesus Christ and us. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him has not anything been made that was made. That is the lofty one who came in Bethlehem in the incarnation. What is humanity's disposition toward this Christ? What is our response? Humanity's disposition has largely been indifference. Uh, Yawns. But note what Christ's disposition toward us is. Well, that's our disposition toward him. His disposition toward us is to give up his body on the cross, shed his blood so that we could be forgiven, we could have life. And what is he doing for us? He's creating a place for us to be with him forever. And he will come to receive us unto himself and take us to this place and he is the way to paradise he has gone away to prepare paradise for everyone who will believe upon him and if in six extraordinary days God through Jesus Christ spoke this marvelous creation into existence can you imagine we cannot imagine the glory of the place he has gone to prepare for us the world having no place for him he creating a place for everyone who would believe on him. Christ has invited us to his place. Have you accepted the invitation? He's prepared room for us. And he's invited us into this room. And it's a room full of hope. And it's not just come over for a visit. It's come, come over and stay forever and live with this hope. And die with this hope. And experience this hope in this place that Jesus has prepared, a place for us. Now, the second direction I want to think is that Jesus Christ has room for us at his place. This is the best news I ever heard. Space is not an issue. Remember that from John 14? In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places, ample accommodations. God has room for everyone who will repent from their sin and believe the gospel, believe the good news about Jesus Christ, place their trust in him. And God has room for you if you've not reached the place in your own spiritual journey where you've ever come to that point. And has he brought you here this morning, one week out from Christmas in 2022, to give your life to Jesus Christ? Wouldn't we remember it together? Eric, do you remember Christmas 2022? That's when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. That's when I stopped considering myself to be good enough to be accepted and realized that even my best self-righteousness is not going to pass muster, but that I could trust in Jesus and in trusting in him have my sin to be forgiven and to be given the hope of eternal life in the free gift of salvation. Has God brought you here this morning? For such ends, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Apostle Paul said, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. 
Now, some of us will be involved in Christmas gatherings in the next week. And I talked to a gal this morning, I had seven siblings, I believe. And, I, and she said, we just met uh, yesterday. And I said, well, where do you meet? How do you figure out a place big enough for seven siblings and children and grandchildren? All meeting? She was describing, well, we, we find the largest house in the family and we, we gather there. Well, Jesus has a large house. And it's large enough for everyone who will come to place their faith in him. Growing up, I used to sing a little chorus. Uh, My grandmother in the old country church we were in, she loved to sing it. And we would often sing it, especially if someone was uh, praying at a kneeling place of prayer. Uh, Come and go with me to my father's house. To my father's house. To my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house where there's peace, sweet peace. Uh, and we'd sing that. As folks would be praying. Uh, and that's my invitation to you. Come and go with us. And there's nothing distinguishable about us except our sin. That's all we bring to God. And he has in Christ forgiven us. Jesus has room for us at his place. Here's his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Anybody else need the rest of Christ this morning in the midst of this old broken world? So the question is, do you live with the hope of eternal life through the promise of God offered in Jesus Christ? Say, Eric, well, that's good. You know, I knew the Christmas story. No room in the end. Yeah, it's interesting that Jesus has provided all kind of room for everyone who will come. How does this stuff get into the stuff of my life? Well, here's the question. Have you given Jesus Christ a place in your own life? Let's apply this term place in other ways this morning and come to three charges before we come to the Lord's table together. First, we all make choices about what we put in the rooms of our heart. There's a verb in 2 Corinthians 7-2 where Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he says this, make room in your hearts for us. It's a fascinating verb. Uh, Peter's going to pick it up in 2 Peter 3-9. Uh, It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all men should, here's the verb, make room in their heart. We're going to come back to that term. Listen. But, you know, it's true that all of us decide what we're going to make room for in our hearts. Some make room for their kids' sports, and that's the dominating thing in their heart. Some make room for for music. I, I, I have a friend. And uh, I was talking to his wife this week, and he's getting ready to retire. And I, I, I said to her, well, look, what's he going to do when he retires? Just play his guitar for six hours a day? She said, oh, no, he does that now before he retires. You know, it's some, play, some play guitar. That, that, they've made room in their life for that. Some gather assets. Some work on their net worth. Some are into wall-to-wall leisure and tumble from their calendar one epic event to the next titillating experience they're going to have and 
That's what they've made ample room for in their heart. What have you made ample room for in your heart? Paul says to the Corinthians, make room for us in your heart. Well, one question that the Christmas story asks is, have we made ample room for Jesus Christ in our hearts? We all structure the catacombs of our hearts. Isn't that true? We furnish each room with what we want. Some of those things that we want and have furnished in those rooms become an obstruction to having ample room for Jesus Christ. In the 1730s in western Massachusetts, George Whitfield, the English gospel preacher, preached at Jonathan Edwards' church one Sunday when he was gone. And he preached to a great effect on the congregation. And Edwards wanted to follow up on this work of God when Whitfield was only there for one Sunday. And he wrote him a letter. One sentence in the letter, he says this. Now, he uses the term religion. And to us, that's kind of a negative term. We don't want religion. We want a relationship with Jesus. But in the 18th century, uh, so influenced by gospel Christianity in New England, the word religion really represented a statement about gospel Christianity, about a fervent heart toward our Lord. Edwards writes to Whitfield and says this, religion has become abundantly more the subject of conversation. Other things that seem to impede it are for the present laid aside. And Edwards was describing to Whitfield the effect that the Spirit of God had on the community after Whitfield preached the word of God and he preached the gospel. Well, it's interesting. He talks about other things that seem to impede gospel Christianity had been set aside. Isn't it true that we have things in our hearts that if set aside would make more room for Jesus to rule and share in our lives than what we have presently. Can we make a strong argument that we've given the space of our hearts to Jesus and his cause? You know, what many hearts need is a good old-fashioned load of repentance taken out to the curb and thrown away. Getting rid of it. How many of our hearts need that? It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all men should, here it is, reach for repentance, have room for repentance, make room for repentance. Is there any room for turning to God away from lesser pursuits and turning unto Jesus? Is there any room for that in your heart? What are our hearts cluttered with? Americans are famous for being hoarders. Uh, We hoard everything. It doesn't matter what it is. What is crowding out space that's been reserved all along in our hearts for Jesus? What is it in your life? What is it in mine? Or to use Jonathan Edwards' words in the letter to Whitfield, what is impeding the progress of gospel Christianity in our own hearts? What is crowding out that space reserved for Jesus all along? You know, there are companies you can hire that will declutter your house. 
I, I, I watched a house once in our neighborhood, and they, they, it was a large house. And you know, you, you, I walk, and so I'd, I'd walk by, and you know, one year the levels of stuff in the upper windows on the second floor was up to here. Then you know, the next year it's up to here. The next year it's up to here. And then I saw this construction crew come in, in two car garage and a living space above, and I thought, wow, you know, maybe, maybe a mother in law is coming in to live with them. You know, her car there. But then I began to watch, kept walking by, you know, first one side of the bay of the garage is full of stuff, and then the upper windows in the apartment, and, and it was just another repository for storage of stuff. That's us in the West. But what's worse is that our hearts get like that, and we push Jesus Christ to the margins of our lives. Oh, yeah, we, you know, that's like we get off the Audubon of the good life and come to a worship service once in a while. I say, Mounts, what, what do you think? Who do you think I am? You know, I'm here this morning listening. You know, you can be here listening, alert, and have a heart so cluttered there's hardly any room for Jesus and his rule and his reign and his glory and the joy that he wants to give you. Well, the second charge is this. It is possible to give the devil a place in our heart. This is interesting. Remember that verse and that command, Ephesians 4.27, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The word opportunity is our word from Luke 2.7. Give no place for the devil. It's interesting, Paul associates an angry spirit with carving out room in your heart for the devil to be there. Opportunity. Give no opportunity to the devil. It is possible to give room to, to provide an end for the enemy of our soul in our own hearts. That's chilling. That's a real warning. That's a shot over the bow. Now, what does it mean to give the devil place in our heart? Does it not mean that all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eye, and the boastful pride of life, those things just begin to take up large, cavernous space in our heart? The lusts of the flesh, just given to fleshly desires that preoccupy our mind and what we look at and what we think about. The lust of the eyes, that covetousness, living in a material culture in the Western world with affluence, begins to be the central driving force of our existence. The boastful pride of life, that uh, uh, we're given to positions of power and aspiring for power and aspiring for influence as the central quest of our existence. These are illustrations of... uh, Carving out cavernous space in our heart for the devil. Giving him an opportunity. Giving him a place. But you come to the Christmas story. One of the, Christmas, one of the things that the Christmas story tells us is it gets next to our heart and says, Hey, wasn't that terrible that there was no room for Jesus? Yeah, I had him out there in the barn around the animals. Well, hey, what kind of space is in your heart for Jesus? And that's what Christmas is asking us. This year, you know, I've told you before, I was a bellman in seminary, and a bellman has a job, 
and you're acquainted with all the catacombs of the hotel. You know what's there. You know the services. You know how to get a room up and going. And, and so you come there. You get them in the room. You get them settled. You get their luggage in place. You get the thermostat right. You make sure everything's right and you leave. You, you, you set them up for being there. Here's Paul, which offers a chilling word. It is possible to set up a room in your heart, and it can be a dominating room for the devil, giving him place, giving him opportunity. As we inspect the corridors of our heart this morning, what do you find? Any of that 1 John 2.16 stuff, all that is in the world, is Christmas calling us to declutter our hearts. Finally, life's great glory is to give Jesus Christ the presidential suite of our hearts. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 17. We descend upon a prayer of Paul where he talks about our heart. Life's great glory is to give Jesus Christ the presidential suite of our heart. The presidential suite is the best room of any facility. It is the crown jewel of all the available space in the hotel. It often has a nice kitchen. It often has a nice living area. It will have the best master bath and bedroom set entitled the presidential suite. It's the best and the finest. Is that the kind of room we're giving to Jesus and his rule in our lives or not? Is he shuffled out to the barn? Notice the core thought of Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hear the word of the Lord. When he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, this notion of dwelling carries with it the idea of very much feeling at home and welcome in that space. Is that Jesus in my heart? Is that Jesus in your heart this morning? The heart being the deepest part of us that drives everything about us. Does he have the presidential suite or not? To feel at home, to dwell there comfortably. Now, my, I'm not very disciplined in caring for my desk. Which means my desk looks like a garbage dump. But I know where everything is. And I know which piles it it is in. And I face chagrin over uh, realizing that whenever I throw something away, I need it the next week. And so believing that, I I keep the piles how they are. But they're not very becoming. And there are some who are so fastidious at the end of every day. I mean, let's see. I'm not very good at cleaning out my box for example, this morning, 4,981 emails. You know, I, I should clean out my box. I really should. But why clean it out? Just keep going, you know. Um, a gal came in my office one day, and I noticed her beginning to fidget and, like, wring her hands, and, and she said, oh, Pastor, I'm sorry, I can't be in here. 
And I, I said, are you okay? No, I'm, I'm really not comfortable. I said, what's wrong? And she said, it's your desk. I, I said, what? She said, it's your desk. And, and, and at her place, I mean, it's just all perfect. And everything is wonderful. And, 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 but she actually got anxious over it because of my lack of discipline for how I was caring for my desk. And she, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't be here. She was not comfortable in that space. Now, here's a question. Is Christ, and this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 3, is Christ comfortable in the space of your heart because of the space that you've given him? I mean, are we talking manger stuff in the back barn? Are we talking the presidential suite? An acquaintance of mine is a really good friend of Vice President Mike Pence. In fact, he would, uh, when he would have vacations in the Trump administration, he would just take over my friend's house in Florida, and my friend lives in a harbor, and it's, it's a very nice place. And he, he'd just take it over. All the things he learned about how they closed down the bridge and the access and the divers in the water and the whole nine yards. It's fascinating stuff. But anyway, uh, they're together. I, they, they, I, I was sent a picture of their Thanksgiving gathering together. There they are, the two couples. Uh, but when he wanted to have vacation, what my friend did was he just uh, threw him the keys, left the premises, and what is the idiom? Gave him a run of the place. So everything that was his belonged to his good friend whom he loves and he wanted to give a break to and so it was wide open what's ours is yours it's your place now one of the questions that christmas asks us is is that how we've treated christ is that the place we've given him in our hearts at this time does he have the presidential suite of our hearts Now notice, Paul is praying in order to get there for God to give us strength and the Spirit to lead us right to that good place. And that's what we need. And that's what's available. Does Jesus Christ occupy preeminence in our own heart? Christmas asks us, Have you given Jesus the place he deserves in our life? We're going to sing a song and then we're going to come to these elements which explain all we need to know about why he should have such a place. All he ever did was love us and give himself for us and experience the humiliation of setting his glory aside so that we could share in that glory through the sacrifice of his love. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to preach, it's hard to live, and we need your help. And I pray that we would be giving Jesus his rightful place, the Lord of glory, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, speak to our hearts this morning. We're going to sing a song and come to the table. Listen to us pray in this moment and say to you what we need to say to you in this moment about what's in our heart and what you've brought us 
to focus upon today. Hear our prayer right now. right where we are and take us where we need to be and all along want to show us the glory of having Jesus Christ ensconced in that presidential suite with the run of the house and bringing rich luster and blessing to our living. This is the way you created us to live. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. We're serving the Lord's table. You can come forward as we're